great to have you here at the Medina East Campus. And man, thanks so much for spending your time here. Uh, Steve mentioned uh, just a moment ago, if you are a guest with us here today, so if it's your first time here, or if you're just kind of reconnecting at Grace and maybe you haven't been here for a while, uh, let me just say thanks so much for being here. We're so glad that you're with us. And if you are just joining us, you're actually catching us today in the midst of a series that we've been in for the past several weeks that we've been calling Jesus Come and See. And again, if you've kind of missed it, basically here's kind of the premise of this series. We said the big goal of this series is that we are looking to replace what we called a hand-me-down version of Jesus with a first-hand encounter with Jesus. And here, here's what we meant by that. What we said is that every single one of us in this room and pretty much everybody in our society, that we all start our initial understanding and perception of Jesus based off of another person. And so we're all handed down some understanding of Jesus. And so maybe for you, uh, you inherited your understanding of Jesus from your parents. Or maybe for you, uh, you, your understanding and your picture of who Jesus is was painted by your religious tradition that you grew up in. Or maybe for you, you didn't grow up in the church. Maybe for you, your understanding of Jesus is what's been portrayed to you through the media. And here's what we said. We said, all of us start there. As it relates to Jesus, we all start with a hand-me-down version. But here's what we said. We said, our hope in the series is that we don't stop there, that there comes a need, there comes a time when we need to come and see for ourselves, when we need a first-hand encounter, when we need to look at what Jesus taught about what his claims, we need to look at his life, and we need to process through those things for ourselves. And so that's what we're doing in this series. One of the ways you can think about this series, we've been explaining it, is this whole series is really an invitation into an investigation. And so we're inviting everybody, regardless of where you might be in your faith journey, and we understand that some of you uh, maybe have been followers of Jesus for a very long time. Some of you maybe have not. You're still trying to figure all that out. This is an invitation to everybody, wherever you are, to come and see Jesus, to come and investigate him for yourself. And so the way we've been doing this, you might remember, is we're actually journeying through the gospel of Matthew. So we're working our way through the gospel, the New Testament book of Matthew. And the reason we're doing that is because we said that Matthew is actually one of the earliest first century eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus that we have in our possession. So Matthew was a guy who would have known Jesus, he would have witnessed his life, and he actually documented the things that Jesus said and the things that he did. And we are privileged to have that uh, kind of preserved for us. And so we're going back, looking at the Gospel of Matthew together. So today, as we continue in this investigation, as we continue to work our way through this Gospel, uh, we are going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 20. And so I want to encourage you, if you would please grab your Bibles with me, and if you would join me in Matthew 20, uh, that is where we're going to be going here today. Uh, by the way, if you didn't bring a Bible, no problem, page uh, 689 in the Bibles that we have under the chairs. Feel free to make use of those. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, you could just have one of ours. We actually would love it if you would take a Bible home, make it a gift from us to you. So Matthew 20 is where we're going to be headed. Now, as you're uh, locating Matthew 20, getting there, I think before we read what we're about to read, it would be helpful if I gave you a little bit of context as to what we're about to read. So if you were here last week, if you were here with us last week, we were actually in Matthew 19. And in Matthew chapter 19, what we witnessed was we actually saw a very important conversation that Jesus had with a guy who is sometimes referred to as the rich young ruler. And basically, uh, if you were here last week, you probably remember this, the conversation topic was that of eternal life. And so Jesus was talking to this man about how one can enter into and gain access to eternal life. And basically, the summary of what we talked about last week is we said that eternal life, according to Jesus, is not something that you can earn based on your performance. 
And so we talked about this. We said that there is no amount of good works, there is no amount of performance, there is no amount of morality that is somehow going to earn you eternal life with Jesus. Last week, we discovered that the only way anyone enters into eternal life is when you come as a little child. And what that means is that you come with nothing but need. You come with nothing but dependency. In other words, we don't come to God with a resume of our performance and how good we are. We come with nothing but a recognition of our need and our desire that Jesus has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And here's what we said. We said, again, if you were here last week, what we said is we said that this teaching that Jesus gives about eternal life is actually very paradoxical to the way that most of us think. And we said that many people in our society and actually many people throughout the centuries of history that they have not understood eternal life this way. We actually pointed to the illustration we used last week was we used this thing we called the goodometer. I don't know if you remember this, but we said that this actually right here is a good illustration of the way that most people think eternal life works. And basically it's like this, right? That good people get eternal life and bad people don't get eternal life. Right? And so good people go to the good place and bad people go to the bad place. And so last week, as we were talking about this, we gave the example. We said, so for example, in this way of thinking, Mother Teresa, who all of us would say is undisputedly like a morally good person, like if anyone gets in heaven for being good, it's probably someone like a Mother Teresa. And then we said, then like an Adolf Hitler, like someone who is undisputedly kind of bad, we all would agree with that. We said, that's a person who doesn't get eternal life. And here's what we said last week. We said that while at face value, that might make sense, if you actually stop and think about it for even just a little bit of time, you realize that this whole thing breaks apart. And the reason is because here's, here's the issue. We look at this and the question becomes, well, where is the line? Right? Like, like how good is, so you might be saying, I'm not Mother Teresa. And you might be saying, but I'm not Hitler. But like, but like, how good do I actually have to be to have eternal life? Like, so for example, if your whole life, if your whole life, you are a relatively good person, you're over 50% good, your whole life, right? And then one day, just one day, you have a really bad day. And I mean, it's like a really bad day. You like cuss out your boss. And then on the way home, you break check the person behind you who's tailgating you and you find out your grandma. And then you stop, you know, it's a really bad day. You stop at the pet store and buy a cat. It's like a bad morally evil, deplorable day, right? And let's say that you end that day and you're at 49% and then you go to sleep and you die. What happens to you? What happens? So you see this, this doesn't work. And that's why Jesus says, this is not the way eternal life works. Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and he said, no, only God is good. Only God is good, which means nobody is good enough by their performance to get eternal life. The only way that we can gain access to eternal life is when we recognize our dependence and our need for Jesus. Now, the reason I, I recap all of that, because some of you were here for that last week, is because what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 is actually directly related to what he's going to say today. Because, here's my guess. My guess is for some of you, if you were here last week, which by the way, if you weren't, you can always catch that on our website, on our app, all of those are for free. But let me just tell you that for some of you, if you were here last week, you may have heard this and you may have thought, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. But if you walked away and thought about it for any length of time, my guess is that maybe there was an objection that came to your mind. It's a very common objection and it might want something like this. You might have thought, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute though. If that's true, something about that doesn't seem fair. There's something about that that doesn't seem right. Let me, let me see if I can highlight it this way. You may have walked away and you may have thought, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. I'm not as good as God. Nobody is good as God. 
But you might say, but you know what? Like comparatively speaking to other people, like I'm, I'm actually, I mean, come on, like I'm not that bad. Like I'm a, pre- I'm a pretty good person. I pay my taxes. I don't beat my children. You know, I try to feed them three meals a day. I, I mean, sure, I've lied. Sure, I've done some bad things. There was the whole college thing. There was that whole thing. And sure, I've done that kind of, But for the most part, man, I'm generous. I try to be a nice person. Like, I'm not that bad. And what you're telling me is you're telling me that all the good things that I do have no bearing on my eternal destination. That's what you're telling me. And if that's true, then what you're saying is that if there's somebody who's, like, really bad, like, really bad, like, like let's just talk about, like, like serial killer bad, you're telling me they have the same access that I do? Something about that doesn't seem fair. There's something about that. How about this? Did you guys, did you notice, just for example, this, this past week, I don't know if you've been following the news, but uh, I've been following that story about Jamie Kloss, and you, you've kind of maybe read about her, 13-year-old girl, tragic story. 13-year-old girl, young man broke into their house, a guy named Jake Patterson, killed her parents, abducted her. She escaped miraculously, thank God she did. You're telling me Jake Patterson has the same access to eternal life that you do and that I do. And you see, all of a sudden, I think for some of us, that makes us a little uncomfortable because this now, all of a sudden, it seems a little scandalous. It seems a little scandalous. Now, now let me just say that if you can relate with that or if you feel that rise up inside of you, like, hold on, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. I want you to know that Jesus understands that. And that Jesus actually anticipates that that is going to be our response. And that's why he is going to say what he's about to say next. He's going to address this whole issue. And the way that he does it, by the way, is actually really interesting. He does it through a very perplexing little parable. And so he tells a little story. And that's what we're going to read here together today. So let's start off. Uh, I had you turn to chapter 20. We're actually going to start in chapter 19, verse 30. Okay, so this is actually where the story begins. It's in chapter 19, verse 30. Uh, real quick side note, uh, when you read the Bible, sometimes you'll notice that there's you know, chapter breaks and there's verses. I think it's important to remember that the chapters and verses uh, were actually added later. And so when Matthew would have written the Gospel of Matthew, he actually didn't put chapters and verses in that. That was added later. And unfortunately, sometimes the cha- chapter breaks aren't helpful. And this is actually one of those situations because verse 30 actually is the beginning of the story he's going to tell in chapter 20. So let's just kind of look at it together. Here's what Jesus says. He says, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. All right, so Jesus opens up with this statement. It's kind of, it almost sounds like a little bit of a riddle, doesn't it? The last will be first, and the first will be last. It's kind of this perplexing little riddle-like statement. It's like something Yoda would say. He begins with this, and I want you to understand that this little statement right here is the key to understanding the story that he's about to tell. And the reason I know that is because not only does Jesus start the story this way, but I want you to notice he actually ends the story this way. So if you've got your Bible open, I want you just to glance down real quick or scroll down real quick to verse 16. And you'll notice in verse 16, after Jesus is done telling the story, how does he conclude? He says, the first will be last and the last will be first. So that's helpful. Jesus is telling us, here's the point that I'm trying to make. The point is, the last will be first and the first will be last. So what does that mean? Well, let's read the story. Here we go, starting off in verse one of chapter 20. Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. All right, so Jesus launches into this story, this parable, this hypothetical situation. 
And I want you to notice, this is clarifying, by the way, that he starts off by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, that's helpful because what is this whole parable about? It's trying to help us understand what the kingdom of God is like, what the kingdom of heaven is like. In other words, it's trying to help us understand what it's like when Jesus is king. What's it like? What is God's economy like? And so he says, he says it's like this. He said, once upon a time, there's a landowner. And the landowner went out early in the morning and he went and he hired some workers for his vineyard. Now to you and I, this might seem kind of weird. This guy is going out at the beginning of the workday and he's hiring people for that day. That might seem strange to us, but I want you to understand that back in these times, that actually this is a pretty normal situation. So, so back in the first century times, there actually was a class of laborers that were essentially day laborers. Uh, this was a, a group of people who were basically seasonal workers and what they would do is they would hire themselves out one day at a time. They were so desperate for work that they would hire themselves out one day at a time. These guys, the day laborers, they actually would have been the lowest class of workers within that society. Gen generally, they would have been unskilled. Uh, they would have been, like I said, they were working paycheck to paycheck. So basically, if they could find a job that day, they could eat that day. If they couldn't find a job that day, they weren't eating that day. And so these guys were in a very vulnerable spot. In fact, even slaves and servants back in this time had it better than day laborers because slaves and servants lived underneath the umbrella of the family. These guys didn't have that kind of security. And so these are like the lowest class workers in this society. So check this out. The Bible says that the landowner, who is presumably a very wealthy person, comes and he's look, looking for some guys to hire for that day. Verse 2. So he found some guys, and he, now just notice this word. This is going to be important later. He agreed. He agreed. Um, so in other words, there was an agreement that was made. You can think about it this way. Uh, there was a contract. There was an, a verbal arrangement. And basically, here's what it was. He said, I'm going to pay you a denarius for the day, and then he sends them into the vineyard. So the agreement, you work for me for a day, and I'll give you a denarius. Now, um, just to help you kind of get your mind around how much money a denarius was, a denarius was actually the standard wage for a worker for one day back in this society. So it's very, very. This is a very fair wage that he was offering these guys. But what I want you to what I want you to notice here, and this is kind of important, is that a denarius this actually was not just fair. This was actually being a little bit generous. And the reason is because a denarius was the standard wage for a skilled worker back in this time. A denarius was the wage for a Roman soldier back in this time. And so when this guy, when the, when the, uh, the landowner comes to these you know, day laborers and he basically says, I'm gonna pay you what the experts get paid for one day, that's actually more than fair. It's actually very generous. And so my guess is these guys were excited. They're like, yeah, definitely, man. We will sign that deal. We will sign that agreement. We are in to work for you. So they went to work. Look what happens next, verse three. At about nine in the morning, nine in the morning. So, so this is now three hours into the workday. In the first century, the workday was from six o'clock a.m. to six o'clock p.m. So they would work 12 hours a day and they would do this six days a week. They would rest on the seventh day. Very hard working class of people, right? So nine o'clock in the morning, three hours into the workday, he went out and he saw others that were standing in the marketplace doing nothing. Check this out, verse four. He told them, you also go work in my vineyard and I'm gonna pay you whatever's right. And so they went. Now notice with these guys, no contract, no arrangement, no agreement. He just says, you go and work for me and I'll pay you whatever's right. I'll pay you whatever's good. And so they agree and they go. Watch this next thing, verse five. He went out again about noon and then again 
at about three in the afternoon and he did the same thing. And so you start to see this pattern emerging, right? Every three hours, he's going and he's getting people and he's bringing them back into his vineyard. Every three hours, so he does this at nine, he does this at noon, he does this at three. And then look at this next part in verse six. At about five in the afternoon, five in the afternoon. Now help me out real quick. How much time is now left in the workday? One hour, one hour. So at five in the afternoon, workday's almost over. He goes out again and he found still others who were standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? He says, why are you guys out here? Why, why are you still standing here? And they replied, because no one's hired us, they answered. So here's what I want you to understand. The reason these guys were standing around doing nothing wasn't because they were lazy. That's not why. The reason they were standing there doing nothing is because no one would hire them. It's not that they were trying to avoid work. I actually think it's helpful. One commentator I was reading, I thought it was really helpful what he said. He said that most likely the reason that these guys would have been there at five o'clock in the afternoon, the 11th hour of the workday, and still not had a job is probably because they were the kind of people that no one wanted to hire. That's probably why. And so most likely these would have been, you know, people who had been injured or disabled, maybe weak, maybe elderly, maybe uh, people who were targets of discrimination, like criminals, people with a bad reputation, maybe people who were targets of racial discrimination, which is very real back in this time. So in other words, here's what I want you to understand. This group of people was the people who you would pick last in dodgeball. Right? That's who you got here. And the Bible says that this, this landowner goes, and look at this, he said to them, you also, you guys too, go ahead and work in my vineyard. I want you guys to go and work in my vineyard as well. To which I'm guessing they probably were like, there's only an hour left. And he was probably like, it's fine, go ahead. I want you to get to, okay, okay. And so they go to work. Now check this out, verse eight. When evening came, so now it's 6 p.m., it's quitting time, end of the day. The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. Now notice this next part. Beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now this is really significant. What, what happens here. Notice the language. The landowner says, get the workers, line them up. It's time to pay them. But there's a very specific way that he wants to line them up. He says, line them up with the last first in the first last. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That is the point of this parable. So Jesus is deliberately getting ready to make his point here in just a moment. And by the way, the way that he would have lined these guys up is contradictory to our sensibilities. Right? All of us, we tend to be under the impression that it's like first come, first serve. That's how we think. So man, if you were here first, that means you get paid first. And if you were here last, you get paid last. But not in this parable. The, the landowner says, nope, the last one's first and the first ones are gonna be last. And it's time to distribute wages. Now watch what happens next because this would have been just so shocking so shocking to those who were hearing Jesus. Verse nine, the workers who were hired at about five in the afternoon came and each of them received, notice this, say it with me, a denarius. They all got a denarius. You guys remember how much a denarius is worth, right? That's a full day's wage. They worked for one hour. Now, can you imagine how these guys must've felt, right? They, they clearly understood that they were the beneficiaries of an act of generosity. They knew that this wasn't what they deserved. They were like, wow, a you're giving us a denarius. That's, my guess is these guys probably felt like uh, someone who found out that they were on Oprah's favorite things. You know what I'm talking about? Now you get a denarius and you get a denarius and they're like, this is the best. They were probably elated at this. This was wonderful. Now look at this, this is so cool. So the camera now pans over to the guys who worked all day. 
Look what we see happens, verse 10. So when those who were hired first, when they came, they, here's a key term, they expected that they would receive more. They expected that they were gonna get more. To which, man, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't you? I mean, I just put yourself in their shoes. Can you imagine, here's this group of guys who had worked for one hour, and this landowner just gave them a whole denarius. I mean, wouldn't you be thinking in your mind, well, okay, all right. Man, this guy seems like he's pretty, pretty, pretty generous. I, I don't know what's coming for me, but it's going to be pretty good. My, my guess is if I was an all-day worker and I saw that take place, I'd start doing the calculations in my mind. Right? I'd be like, let's see. He worked for one hour. He gets it. That's 12 times the amount he should have got paid. I worked for 12 hours. That means I got, I got 12 denarii coming to me. That's going to be pretty good. That's what I would be thinking, right? And so, so look what happens. They expected that they were going to get more, like I think many of us would. But each one of them also received a denarius. They got the same at the guys who only worked for an hour. Now, again, I just want you to put yourself in the place of those who worked. How would you feel? How would you feel if you were in that scenario? My guess is you would probably feel like they felt because look what the Bible says. Here's how they felt. When they received it, the denarius, they begin to grumble against the landowner. They started to grumble, murmur, complain. I actually really love this word, by the way, the word grumble in the Greek language. Let me just nerd out for just a second. The word grumble is really, really cool in the Greek language. Let me just show it to you. This is what it is. It's this right here. And let me just ask you, how do you think you pronounce that? Why don't you turn to your neighbor and try, I know you want to, turn to your neighbor, try your best to pronounce that word. What do you think it is? Yeah. Yeah, so here, I, I actually don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, either. But the reason I had you do that is the sound that you made when you did that. That's actually what, what this word is going for. So this word, I thought this was cool. I was reading a Greek lexicon. This word is actually onomatopoetic. You guys know what onomatopoeia is? It's a word that sounds like the sound that it makes. That's what it is. So like boom or clash or wham or other 80s bands, right? That's a, it's onomatopoeia. And so what, what Jesus is saying, he's telling the story. He says, when these guys heard it, when the, when the all-day workers saw that they only got the same that the guys who worked for one hour, what did they do? They were like, that's what it says in the Greek, right? It's that idea. And what were they complaining about? Well, notice it tells us the content. This is what they said. They said, these who were hired last worked just an hour, they said. And you've made them equal to us. You've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. In other words, they said, man, they've only worked for an hour. We have been in the sun for 12 hours. We are sunburnt. We are dirty. We are sweaty. They're still clean. They came at 5 p.m. That's, that's, the, cool, that's the cool part of the day. They didn't, they didn't experience. In other words, here was their protest. Here was their protest. It's not fair. That's their protest. It's not fair. Why do they get that and we get this? And the landowner responds. Here's what the landowner says. He answered one of them, I am not being unfair. No, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Some of your translations say, I have not wronged you. Some of them say, I am not acting unjustly. He says, no, I'm not. I am not being unfair. Look, didn't you, here's the word again, didn't, you make, didn't we make an agreement? 
we had an agreement at the beginning of the day that you would work for a denarius. And that wasn't just fair. That was, that was actually very generous. So take your pay and go. Take your pay and then you go. And then he goes on and he says in verse 14, I want to, I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious? And here's the key, because I'm generous. Here's the issue. He says, I'm not being unfair. I'm not acting unjustly. The problem is that you're envious because I'm generous. You're mad because I'm being gracious. That's why you're upset. That's why. Think, think about this for a second. Why did the landowner hire these guys at the 11th hour? Do you think he really needed their work? But by all indications, he didn't need their work. Why did he hire them? I think here's why he hired them. Because he was being generous. Because he was being gracious. He saw that this was a group of people who had a need that they could not meet for themselves. And he decided as an act of his own volition to be nice and to be gracious and to be generous to them. And then Jesus concludes. So the last will be first and the first will be last. Man, there you got it. And man, wow, what a, what a like I said, what a challenging and perplexing little story that Jesus tells here. So here's the question. What do we do with this? What what are we supposed to do with this parable and how do we apply it to our lives? Listen, here's what I think. I believe that it's pretty clear that in telling this story, Jesus is deliberately trying to mess with our understanding of fairness. I think that's pretty clear. I think Jesus is deliberately trying to challenge the deep-seated sense of fairness that many of us have. When we read this story, I think one thing that happens to all of us is it offends our sense of justice. We read this and we say, that's not fair. That's not fair. Because we expect that the compensation these workers receive should be directly proportionate to the amount of work done. Right? We think the amount of work done should be proportionate to the, to the reward and to the, er, to the wage that they receive. And the reason we think that, by the way, is because that is how our world works. That's how the world works. You get paid according to the, the effort that you put into it. That's the way it should work. That's the way we all think. But you gotta understand something. This parable is not about our world. This parable is not about how our world works. This parable is about how Jesus works. It's about how the kingdom of God works. It's about the economy. And here's what you need, the economy of God. And here's what you need to understand. Here's what you need to understand. Everything in the Christian life is all about grace. The Christian life, the kingdom of God, is not founded on the basis of fairness. It is founded on the basis of grace. Let me just help you out. If you're a person that's here today and you're investigating Christianity and you're asking what is the distinguishing feature between Christianity and every other world religion, let me just tell you what it is right now. It's grace. It's grace. It is the grace of God. Everything in the Christian life is about unmerited favor that is given to us by God, that it's not what you've done, it's what Christ has done for you. It's all grace, all grace. And yet, here's the crazy thing. Some of you have been followers of Jesus for a long time and you know that. And yet, this concept of God's grace is the most difficult concept for us to wrap our mind around. The grace of God, we are all fighting to truly understand the depths of what that means, that God is gracious. Because here's what I see. What I see a lot of times is that for many of us, we drift sometimes and sometimes unknowingly into approaching our relationship with God as a contract 
rather than approaching our, our relationship with God on the basis of grace. Do you notice in this passage, by the way, that in this passage, Jesus is comparing two groups of people. And who are the two groups of people? You have the all-day workers, those who are working in a contract with the landowner. They are operating under, on the understanding of a contract. And then you have the 11th hour workers, those who clearly understand that they are beneficiaries of an incredible act of generosity. They know they don't deserve what they got. And listen, here's what I believe with all my heart. I believe that at the root of so many of the problems that we face, so many of the spiritual problems and issues that we face, is that for many of us, maybe even unknowingly, we want to approach our relationship with God like a contract and not under the basis of grace. I think one of the biggest mistakes we make and one of the biggest problems we have is that we don't actually understand grace and we operate as if it's a contract. Some of you are like, can you give me, can you give me some examples of what you're talking about? Well, sure, let me try. How about this? Let me just give us real quick three, three indications that you might be interacting in your relationship with God on a contractual basis and you might be misunderstanding grace. Actually, you see them right from this passage. So what are they? Well, here's the first one. Just think about this. You're gonna see it in this passage. Number one, if you're experiencing regular bitterness towards God, bitterness, frustration, grumbling, complaining against God, if you find that to be something that you come back to over and over again, I think that that's indicative of, of the fact that you might be interacting in your relationship with God on the basis of a contract rather than on the basis of grace. You might be misunderstanding grace. You notice in this, in this passage, look at the all-day workers, those who were under contract. The Bible says that they expected to receive more. Now, why do they have that expectation? Well, the reason they had the expectation is because they believed, they saw these guys who hadn't worked as hard as they did, and they assumed that because they worked harder, they were more deserving. They, they expected that, God was, that, that the landowner was gonna do this for them. And then notice the Bible says that as a result of that, they grumbled against the landowner. They started to complain. They were bitter. They were resentful towards the landowner. Let me ask you a question. Just think about yourself for a minute. Just think about yourself. Do you find that you oftentimes are in a place when you're bitter or frustrated with God because you believe he is withholding something from you that you think you deserve? Do you find that that happens with you regularly, that you find that you're bitter, resentful, complaining against God because he's withholding something that you feel like you deserve? Does that happen? That maybe I can ask it this way. Do you find that you sometimes cite the good things you've done as a reason for why God should do something for you? I tell you, I, I find myself doing this sometimes. You know, things don't go well for me or something doesn't go in the way I think it should go or it's March in Ohio and it's snowing again. And, and I, what, what, what do I do? Here's what I'll do. I'll say, God, why me? Why me? And I'll start to go back to the good thing. God, I'm a good person. I try to serve you. Why would you let this happen? Now, do you, do you hear what that is? That is contract language. God, I have done this, therefore you need to perform this way. I'm just telling you, we do this in a lot of ways. For example, some of you maybe uh, in this room, maybe you're a young adult and you're single and you don't wanna be. You don't wanna be single and you've been praying that God would give you a partner in this life and that's something that you've been coming at. And by the way, it's a great thing to pray for. It's a wonderful thing to desire. But quite honestly, you find that sometimes you drift into resentment. You drift into bitterness. You drift into a grumbling spirit against God. And, and when you pray, maybe sometimes for you, you're like, God, I don't understand. I don't understand. I'm trying to do this right. I could easily go out to the bars and just get wasted and hook up with people just like everybody else, but I'm not doing that. I'm trying to do it right, and this is what I get. I'm still single, and I'm still alone. 
and there's a resentment and there's a bitterness, which is in a lot of ways, maybe for you at your job. At your job, you've got slighted or you got overlooked or maybe you got let go. And you're looking and you're saying, I don't understand. I'm a person of integrity. I work hard. I've done everything right. This is what I get. This is what I get. And there's resentfulness and bitterness towards God. Maybe for you, it's a health diagnosis. God, I've done everything right. Why me? Why me? Why, why my spouse? Why would I? Maybe, for, maybe for some of us, honestly, maybe it's our marriage. Maybe it's our kids. Maybe, maybe you have done everything textbook. I mean, man, you, you got, you, you know, you've met and your relationship and your marriage was just perfect. And then, you know, you raised your kids and you were like flawless. But now, even though you did everything right, the marriage is still over. They still left you. And maybe even now your kids won't even talk to you. And you're going, is this what I get? I've done, we've done everything right. And God, you owe me this. Now, what is that? I think that stems from a misunderstanding of grace and it exposes that we're actually interacting with God in a contractual basis. So, so yeah, bitterness towards God. How about, the sec- how about this next one? Entitlement towards self. Entitlement towards self. Yeah, I think that this is a big indication that maybe we're dealing with God in a contractual basis and we're misunderstanding grace. Notice in this passage, the all-day workers, they said, these guys only work for an hour and yet you have made them equal to us who have worked all day. Do you see what's happening here? There's an entitlement, there's a self-justification, right? There is a, notice there's a compartmentalization, us and them. You have made us who are worthy equal to them who are not. I think, by the way, this is one of the clearest indications that you have misunderstood grace. It's when you begin to think in compartments, when you start to think in us and them. There's us who work hard and there's them who are lazy, and there's us who are churchgoers. I mean, for crying out loud, we go to church even after daylight savings time. Jesus must love us so much more than them, the people who don't, right? There's us and there's them. There's us who are morally upright and there's those who are morally deplorable. And what happens is, I think that this is, I think that when we do that, what we are doing is we are exposing that we're dealing with God in a contractual basis. We are misunderstanding grace. How about this last one? This one's big, jealousy towards others. Yeah, bitterness towards God, entitlement towards self, and jealousy towards others. Envy towards others. I think this is so important in this passage. He says, are you envious? Are you jealous? Because I've been generous. So these guys were jealous. They were envious. In other words, they looked, they looked at these guys who hadn't worked nearly as hard, and they said, why do they get to be treated so generously, and we don't? It's not fair. I think it's interesting, by the way. Did you ever notice how the only time we say it's not fair is when we feel like someone else has been treated more generously than we have? That's the only time we say it. When we're the ones who have been treated with grace and generosity, we don't tend to say it's not fair. We tend to say, oh, thank you, God. That's a nice little sort of surprise for me, right? I was thinking about this a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, I was at Chipotle. Uh, you guys know the one right down here on 18. By the way, side note, when that one opened, when that Chipotle opened, I went in there and I just gave him my credit card. I was like, here, just take it, open a tab. I don't know how it works. I'm gonna be here a lot, right? And so I was at Chipotle a couple weeks ago, like I usually am, and I was going through the line and she's like, you know, we got to the part where she's like, what kind of meat would you like on your bowl? And I said, I'll take chicken. And so she actually went and she scooped up double chicken on the bowl. And she immediately caught herself. And she's like, oh, she's like, did you say double chicken? I said, ooh, I said, you know what? I didn't. I said, I actually just said chicken, but you know what? No big deal. I'll cover the difference. It's not a big deal. And she said, nope, nope, it was my mistake. You can just have the double chicken and we won't charge you extra. And do you know what I didn't say? I didn't say, 
What? That's not fair. <laughs> right? Double chicken's more. You're going to charge me less? Not fair. That's not you know what I said. I said, this is proof that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. That's what this is. Hashtag blessed, baby. I got double chicken. Let's get this thing done before you change your mind. That's what I thought. Now, I noticed the guy behind me in line. You could tell just looking at me, he was just like, hmm. Must be nice, right? And listen, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, listen, let me ask you this question. Do you find that sometimes you're jealous and envious because God would choose to be particularly gracious to another person in a way that's unique to you? I mean, we do this all the time, don't we? Why, why do they get the opportunity? How come, how come he or she gets all of those gifts? How, how, come, how come she gets to get married? Why do, why do they get to have a baby and we're struggling so hard? It's not fair. We do it all the time. Look at the Instagram. You can, you can hear it in the way we talk. Looking at your Instagram post and, oh, do you see where such and such is on vacation? Did you notice? Hmm, oh, hmm, hmm, must be nice. Must be nice. And there's this, man, there's this, this, this thing inside of us that says that somehow we're more deserving than they are to have the thing. And this is, this is you know what I think is so interesting? I just think this is so fascinating. You know the word envious in the Greek language? I just thought this was so cool. The word envy in the Greek language, you know what it literally is? It literally is this. It is to have an evil eye. I just think that's cool. It, I think what Jesus is saying is this. I think what Jesus is saying is when you misunderstand grace, it actually affects the way you see things. There's something wrong with your vision. There's something wrong with the way you see things when you don't understand grace. It affects the way you view God. It affects the way you view yourself. It affects the ways that you view others and you're not seeing things correctly. And as a result of that, it leads to bitterness and it leads to resentment and it leads to envy and it leads to entitlement and all of these terrible things that are so harmful to you. I think that all of this, all of this points to, to this one problem and it's that there's a miss. We haven't truly understood grace because when we understand grace, it changes the way we view everything. Yeah, it's interesting. I was uh, uh, thinking about this and, um, yeah, this, uh, this word envy. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, one, one thing that's true, this is just really honest. I think one thing that's true is that, quite honestly, you, you don't want God to be fair. I think if you really think about it, you don't want God to be fair. And I'll be honest, I don't actually want God to be fair. Because you know what? If we actually approached God in a contractual basis, do you know what we've actually earned according to the Bible? The Bible says if that's the case, Romans 6, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. Here's the truth. You don't want God to be fair. And I don't want God to be fair. Philip Yancey, in his excellent book, What's So Amazing About Grace, I think he says it so well, talking about this story, he said, we risk missing the story's point that God dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us gets paid according to merit, for none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirements for a perfect life. If paid on the basis of fairness, we all would end up in hell. And that's true. That's hard to hear, but it's true. And here's the point, man. We don't want God to operate, us, operate on a basis of fairness. We want God to be gracious. And it's only when we recognize his grace that we can see things correctly. I believe that when you realize that the blessings of your life are not owed to you, but they're, they're just simply because of God's grace, it's gonna change the way you view everything. I was thinking about this this past week and there was this story 
that I was reading. I actually read it a few weeks ago. I think it was on a blog or something. And it was about this woman. Uh, this woman had little kids. And as many of you know who have little kids, real exhausting. And so she had one day a week, one day a week where she had a morning away from the kids. It was kind of like her own personal time. And as you can imagine, she really looked forward to that time, right? It was, it was, she was kind of an introvert and it was just, you know, it was refreshing for her to be by herself. And so she had like a routine. And what she would do is uh, every time she had this morning, she would go to the mall and she would go to her favorite coffee shop and she would get her favorite coffee. And then right next to the coffee shop, there was this cookie store called Mrs. Fields. I don't think I've ever even heard of that before, but she would go and get a bag of Mrs. Fields cookie and she would get a, a cup of coffee and she would sit down at a table by herself and she would read a magazine and she would just enjoy some me time. Looked forward to it every week. So one week, she went to the mall and was going through her standard kind of routine, got her cookies, got her coffee, and the mall was kind of busy that day. And so unfortunately, she actually had to share a table with an older gentleman, which again, she was an introvert, so it was a little bit challenging to her, but she didn't want to let it get in the way. So she sat down, got her coffee, has her cookies, and she's starting to read her magazine. Everything's okay. And this older man's, you know, across the table. He's reading his newspaper. Everything's going fine until a couple minutes into it, this older gentleman proceeds to reach over and grabs a cookie out of her bag and eats it. And she's just like, like she's like, did that just happen? And clearly she's like irritated and frustrated, but she's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to, I don't know how am I supposed to act? So in an act of kind of passive aggressive protest, she reaches over, makes eye contact with the guy, grabs a cookie out of the bag and eats it. Like as if to say like, uh, I don't know if you made a mistake, these are my cookies. And so this man looked at her kind of smiled and kind of nods. And she's like, what is his deal? So anyway, she gets back to reading her magazine. A couple minutes go by. This guy reaches over, grabs another cookie out of the bag. And she's like, she, now at this point, she can't even read her magazine because she's like, what is, so she reaches over, she grabs a cookie. This happens five times. They go back and forth, each grabbing a cookie. And then she, at this point, like I said, she can't read the magazine. She's so upset about this. And then when it finally gets to the last cookie, this guy has the audacity to reach in the bag, take out the cookie, break it in half, give her one half of the cookie, and they both eat. Now, at this point, she's just like, she's had it. So she gets up. She's like so mad. She grabs her coat and grabs her stuff. She starts walking away. And as she's walking away, she looks down at her purse, and there at the top of her purse is her bag of cookies unopened and uneaten. And man, let me just tell you that in that moment, all of her resentment, all of her bitterness, all of her entitlement was replaced with thankfulness at this man. This man just shared his cookies with her. He split the last one, said, here you go, right? Now listen, here's, here's the turn. Here's the point. When you realize that all of the cookies in your life were purchased by Jesus Christ and not by yourself, It's gonna change the way you see things. The resentment, the bitterness, the entitlement will melt away. Here's the problem we make when we read this passage. You wanna know the mistake all of us make when we read this parable? You know who we tend to identify with in this passage? You know who we think we are? We think we're the all-day workers. You think you're the all-day worker. I think I'm the all-day worker. Can I just tell you something? You're not the all-day worker. Do you know who you are in this parable? You are the 11th hour worker, and I am too. Some of you are like, no, I'm not. Some of you are like, Do you, dude, I grew up in the church. I've been going to church for 30 years. I have served faithfully. I have give, do you know how much money I have given to the things of God? I am an all-day worker. And let me just tell you, with all the love of my heart, no, you are not. No, you're not. 
And I tell you, I was so convicted this week reading this parable because the whole time I was reading it, I was thinking that I was the all-day worker. I was thinking, man, God, you know the stuff I do. I do so much for you. So much of my life is given to the things of you, to serving you and serving other people. I am the all-day worker. And man, I just felt so convicted when I realized, no, I'm not. You know who you are? You know who I am? We are the 11th hour workers. Let me ask you a question. Who is the only one who did the work that God required, who kept the agreement and didn't break it? Who is the only one who's done that? Tell me, who is it? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only Who is the one who has done all of the work? Who is the one who took our sin on his back, lived a perfect life we couldn't live, and then died on the cross for our sins? Who did all the work? Did you do that? I didn't do that. Man, Jesus is the all-day worker. You and I are the 11th hour workers. We are the beneficiaries of a divine generosity. It's only because of Christ's work. And you know what's so fascinating to me is that Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross after living a perfect life that we couldn't live and now dying a, sinful, a, a criminal's death that we deserve, do you know what Jesus didn't say on the cross? Do you know what he didn't say? If anyone in the, in the history of humanity had the right to say it, do you know what he didn't say? He didn't say, it's not fair. He didn't say that. He could have. He could have said, why do I die and they get life? He could have said, how come I suffer and they go free? It's not fair. Why do I do all the work and they get all the grace? That's not what he said. You know what he said when he was on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It was not nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was generosity. It was grace. Let me just tell you, if Jesus doesn't begrudge the generosity and the grace of God to us, why should we ever begrudge the generosity and grace of God to another person? I think it's when we only recognize that, that we are the 11th hour workers that we can clearly see the truth about who God is and about who we are and about who others are. And that's the only way we can be freed of bitterness and entitlements and resentments and envy. It's when we realize what Christ has done for us. Ask the band to come up and as the band makes their way up here, let me just say this. In a moment, we're gonna have an opportunity to sing to this God of grace. And I'm just saying, if, you're if you find yourself sitting here today and you're thankful, you're thankful for what God has done for you, then express it. Sing to him, sing loud and thank him for what he's done for us. Because here's the truth. Thank God he's not fair. He's better than fair. He's gracious and he's generous. And let me say too, if you're a person here today and you're investigating Christ, here's what I want you to understand. This is what it's all about. It's all about his grace that is freely offered to you. We say this all the time here at the Medina campus. We are all more messed up than we think we are. I am more messed up than I think I am. And yet, because of the grace of God, you're more accepted than you could ever imagine. You're more accepted than you could believe. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, thank you that you're not fair. You're better than fair. You're gracious. Because the truth is, if you treated us, if you treated us on a contract basis, if you truly treated us as we deserved, we would be in a really rough spot. We'd be separated from you, and yet it's because of your grace 
It's because of the work that you've done that we get to experience life, that we get to go free. Thank you, Jesus, that you did all the work. And thank you that you did not begrudge the Father's generosity to us, but that you invited it and welcomed it. And I pray that you would help us to be people who don't begrudge your generosity and grace to others, but that we would be people who would genuinely want to see you act graciously to everybody. Father, I pray that you'd renew our hearts, melt away bitterness, melt away resentment. God, would you melt away entitlement? Would you replace jealousy with thanksgiving? Help us to see clearly the things that are true about you. So Father, I pray that you would help us as we go from this place to be full of awe and wonder at what you've done for us. Thank you that you're the all-day worker. Thank you for your grace. We don't deserve it. We are the beneficiaries of a divine generosity that we didn't earn, that we don't deserve. But man, are we thankful for it. I just pray in Jesus' name.